Welcome to Thriving Through Menopause, where we talk about this time of life, mind, body, and spirit. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen. Each week, I'm joined by top professionals dropping their tips and advice. Remember, episodes drop every Tuesday. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a beat. And if you like this podcast, please rate and review it. Thank you, because this helps others to find the show. You can check out our website, find out which episodes are coming up, and get the latest blog and advice by going to my website, thrivethroughmenopause.com, and get ready to thrive, not just survive, through perimenopause and beyond. Welcome to this week's episode of Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen, and we are in for a treat. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects and something that I know personally made a huge difference to me in my menopause journey, and that is self-compassion. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Nicola Hucker and somebody who I have watched on LinkedIn really share so many beautiful insights into self-compassion. So welcome, Nicola. Thank you. Lovely to be here. It's my pleasure to have you here. And you are a doctor, you were a GP. We'll talk a bit about that. But you're now also a coach and particularly a self-compassion teacher. And that's that's the area you've really delved deep into. And you mm-hmm. help lots of women on this journey to thrive based on self-compassion. That's yeah. beautiful. Nicola, tell me, I mean, How did you come to be working with self-compassion? What's your story? As is often the way, completely by accident. I have always been quite interested in what's outside of conventional medicine. I've been quite a rebel in some ways. During my career, I've read a lot. And I was actually doing some coaching training in London before I trained to be a coach myself around the work of Brene Brown with a lovely coach there. And this was her daring greatly training that followers of Brene Brown may may know about. And the coach and I hit it off. We were chatting afterwards and she emailed me and said, there's a training going on in a few months time in Holland around self-compassion. And I think you'd be a good candidate. And my first reaction was like, why? What does she see in me that means I need self-compassion? And of course, that's exactly why I needed to. But I remember I picked up the book Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff. Kristen was one of my trainers. Chris Germer, a psychologist, works with her and, and created this wonderful training. And I remember I read the book, but also I remember thinking about the proposed visit to Holland and it being five days and thinking, how can it take five days <laughs> to learn? Little did I know, to learn self-compassion. I was embarrassed at the idea of going to Holland to spend a whole five days on myself. And that says a lot, doesn't it? As a woman, it was so far from my identity as a mom, as a doctor, as a wife, as a daughter, be spending a whole five days on me. It really challenged me, as did the book, actually, when I read Kristin's book, which I really recommend. I couldn't stop thinking about self-compassion, but it wasn't easy, I'll be honest. It opened a door that... I couldn't close, but I felt so much resistance to the idea. I, I, I can't, was really my response. And, and that was the start of my journey. Yeah, and I, and I can so empathize with that because 
I think we've been brought up to care for everybody else, to not place ourselves at the center. And I trained as a mindfulness practitioner, as many of my listeners would know, and I trained with breathworks who have mindfulness at the very heart of this because they come from a strongly Buddhist background. Um, doing the self-compassion part of it and sort of breezing through. And my, and my mentor saying to me, did you miss that bit? What do you mean? <laughs> and she said, you really haven't delved deeper. And Christopher Germer's book was the big turning point for me. And, I, and one that I recommend to so many of my clients, The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion. And mm. I read that book every lunchtime for I don't know how long <laughs> and absorbed those simple but very beautiful messages. So yeah. yeah, I was so lucky to have Chris and Kristin as my teachers and really, really inspiring people. But also the training, reading the book and going to do this training in Holland, it was unexpected. I thought I knew what compassion was. And I remember one of my colleagues saying, oh, yeah, self-compassion, that's just being kind to yourself, isn't it? And it, actually, that's one of the re really important messages, I think, that I really want to communicate about self-compassion. It's a skill set. It's not an emotion. It's something we can learn. And it's way, way more multi-layered than being kind to ourselves. And understanding that really changed my whole perspective on self-compassion. I actually now see it as a high-performance habit, a hugely powerful life skill. And very, very useful. I'm, I'm in the perimenopause now. I know that, that, that going through the menopause, it's a really useful, really useful skill. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I love that because I, I think you agree. A lot of people say, well, it's empathy mm. or sympathy, but it really isn't that, is it, Nick? Absolutely. And actually, that I, it's really great that you raise that because as a doctor, one of the things I really wrestled with right from when I first went to medical school, I thought we were going to be taught how to deal with difficulty and death and dying. And what we were told at medical school was you just have to build a wall. That was it. That was the, that was the training. And what I realized, I really reflected on this during my career. I could feel how, yes, I ended up building a wall. And actually, I think it's not just in medicine that this is an issue. When we we're feeling beings. Empathy is our natural resonance with the suffering of another being. It's something that happens naturally because we have these mirror neurons in our brain. And yeah. actually, it, although it's important to have empathy, it's also problematic. We, we get overwhelmed. We, we struggle with other people's suffering, with feeling the, the, the suffering on the inside. So what we do is we pull back and we develop strategies to deal with it, what I call building the wall, because yeah. that's what I was told to do. And <laughs> Certainly as a medic, and I know as a patient and a relative of a patient, you can see the wall. You can feel when someone is behind their wall. And what I was looking for throughout my career, and this is what led me to teach a train in self-compassion and, and also to bring it into coaching and to leadership coaching, is an alternative to building a wall. How do we support ourselves through difficulty without pulling back and, and sort of being just isolated from other people. So self-compassion is completely different. It arises from a different part of the brain. And it's been shown to help with anxiety, depression, burnout, even trauma. And definitely one of the components of compassion and self-compassion is this connection, is, is being able to stay connected and not being isolated in struggle. 
Yeah, and exactly in those words there, Nicola, you've described so much of what women in perimenopause are going through because the mental and emotional side of it is massive. Yeah. And if we have built walls, which many of us have, not just, as you said, in the medical profession, but in leadership roles, in, in if you're a teacher, all of these things, we're, we are either specifically or somehow during that time developed this sort of way to shut out being too connected. When we get to perimenopause, it can be quite, I think, I don't even know how to describe that. It's a sort of, we need connection deeply at this time because mm. it's not a journey we should go on on our own. But if we don't have the skill to actually build it, we don't have connection to ourselves and others. I think it makes it an isolating, more difficult experience when a lot of those issues like anxiety and depression can overwhelm us. Absolutely. And of course, for many people going through perimenopause, menopausal symptoms, it's HRT isn't even an option. If you've had a cancer diagnosis and treatment, or if you're someone like me, I just can't tolerate HRT. It makes me feel very unwell and miserable, actually. So, so it's just not an option for some people. And that can leave you feeling like there's nothing for you and you can feel like the only person that's struggling. But also this time of our lives is a time of loss and change, whether it's overt loss like bereavement or loss of a role, or it can be, oh, well, I'm not going to have children then. Yeah. Or it can be, oh, okay, so this is me in my reproductive years ending and am I invisible now? Am I no longer attractive? And all of those experiences can be really isolating. And, and one of the, again, something I really want to share, about 10 years before I came across self-compassion, my initial forays into mindfulness started because I had a back injury. And I learned then, because the painkillers were not working, I learned about this concept of secondary suffering, which is that when we have like an injury, a pain, but it, this could be the same for hot flushes or a difficulty with memory loss, short-term memory or foggy thinking because of the menopause, there's the initial, there's the struggle itself, the back pain, the foggy thinking. And then there's our emotional reaction to it, which magnifies the suffering. So when I had my back injury, my little girl was only three and I couldn't pick her up. And I found it really devastating that I could no longer pick up my lovely daughter. And I was scared. I was scared that it would never get better. And so what that did was it just shot my pain off the scale. In my back pain was so magnified by this secondary suffering. And my first experience of mindfulness was understanding how you can bring that suffering down by 50% by getting rid of the secondary suffering, by releasing the battle, the internal battle. And one of the key components of learning the skills of self-compassion is understanding how those conversations that go on on the inside, the self-judgment and the, the criticism that we level at ourselves, we wouldn't say those things to our friends, but you know, when we forget something or we have a flush in public, the internal reaction to that magnifies the symptoms. So it's actually, self-compassion is a lot about physiology. It's not just about the way we think. It's about learning to manage those very rapid threat responses that trigger all that magnification of symptoms. And that's why it's a skill set. It's something that you can learn so that you're gentle with yourself when you feel a flush coming up or when you've had insomnia 
or feel all over the place, ragey, <laughs> or just forget someone's name. Learning to really manage that internal reaction is, is a big part of why I think this is such a useful skill set for men and women, for everyone. But, you know, for this phase of life, it's very useful. Yeah, I, I mean, I really love that, that conversation familiar to me, but maybe not to my listeners of this secondary suffering and how the initial issue, like the heart flush, for example, which is very common, is short, in reality, quite short-lived, but it is the, oh my God, everybody saw me and they think I'm useless and worthless and I'm hopeless. And then the inner dialogue comes. And of course, Next time we have a hot flush, what happens to us, Nicola? It gets worse, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it's not the flush. It's not the physiological aspect of the flush. It's actually our own mind. Yeah. Don't and it? our mind is really powerful. We all have really tricky minds. We're built for survival rather than happiness. But again, what's really interested me is, so I thought that my very strong inner critic was just how I was. And my tendency to anxiety was just how I was. And I kind of beat myself up about the fact that that was as good as I was going to get. And what's really beautiful to be able to share is how much you can change and transform those things. Not instantly. I'm not a quick fix person, but actually relatively quickly by learning very, very simple skills. So you mentioned before we came on about breathing, we can transform our physiology through just taking a breath. One of the things uh, that comes from self-compassion when you're struggling, when you feel like somebody's being very demanding or shouting at you, taking a breath in, which says one for me, like I'm struggling here and the breath out, which is like sending compassion to the other person. What that does is it sends all sorts of wonderful signals through your body to just relax that threat mode. The, 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 the part of you that's wanting to just run or scream or and and really just soothes that and allows you to stay present and creative and to connect and ask for help and all of those things. So very, very simple skills that a lot of a lot of the people I talk to are worried that what I'm talking about with self-compassion takes ages. It's like, yeah. oh, I've got to wrap myself in cotton. Well, I haven't got time. I'm a mother or Actually, I work with people who have very high pressure jobs, who are busy, just like me. And simple things like that make all the difference. Very, very, very simple and easy things to learn. And sometimes you can do them kindly, Nicola, without people even knowing that you're doing them, which I think, I think may be one of the issues we have as well with this. Yeah, I love that. One of my favorite words is subversive. So I, I love the idea of being self-compassionate because I've decided to look after myself, but nobody actually needs to know I'm doing it. And there's, there's something lovely about secretly just the, the L'Oreal advert because you're worth it. It's just like, we all struggle. Why not be supportive, but nobody needs to know. And the other really strong belief about compassion is that if I start to be compassionate to myself, am I taking from someone else? And actually, it, it's not all or nothing. That's the brain just loves to tell us that things are all or nothing, me or you. But actually, what I found through learning these skills is the more you build skills of compassion towards yourself, the more you have to give. It's the opposite of what we fear. When I was really kind of close to burnout, I've been dishing out compassion for years as a GP, thinking that was a really great thing to do. 
actually, I was getting tetchy and frazzled and short-tempered and struggled with noise with my kids being little. And, and the more I actually worked on building these skills for myself, the calmer and more relaxed I've become as a person with people around me. And I, I have so much more to give. So it's really our fears and the actual reality around self-compassion are just completely different. Yeah, that's very true. And I think one of the things is don't people think that by being compassionate, they're going to be seen as weak. And I see that in women who, for example, have built, in the women you coach, who've built strong professional careers. There's a bit of a hard exterior because that business world is tough. And when we use the word compassion, they reject that because they think they'll be seen somehow as, as weak in their, in, their, in their jobs. Absolutely. So and there's a couple of things there. So one is that we tend to view high performance and compassion at opposite ends of a spectrum. And actually, they sit right next to each other. That to be, to be able to sustain high performance in whether it's professionally or to to do well in your life, to really thrive. Actually, self-compassion sits right next to it. They're not polar opposites. But yes, the other thing is when I'm working with clients, sometimes we have to explore language and to find a term for what we're doing that feels acceptable. Some people really reject the idea of compassion, but actually having an inner cheerleader maybe is okay. Or having an honest and supportive best friend, that's all right. So it's okay. I think language is limited, isn't it? It's, and so there is a lot of societal messaging about self-compassion. When I first read the book, what really came flooding in for me were all these messages growing up as a woman that I had absorbed that it would be selfish or self-absorbed, navel-gazing, that's one of my mum's terms, that, that what would other people think? And I think this is evolutionary. I think there's an element of we have really strong beliefs around that it's not right to be sort of individualistic. Misunderstanding that actually self-compassion isn't individualistic. It helps you to connect more. But yeah, we have to overcome that resistance. And the, the best way to do that, the way that really helped me actually, is to be really open with yourself or with your resistance. Like what gets in the way? Is it an assumption that it's going to take lots of time or take me away from, from others? And, and accept that your brain wants to tell you that, but it isn't necessarily true. It's, it's a story that the brain makes up or that society's told you. Actually, the evidence for that is, is not there. No, it's, it's not. No, there. definitely not there. And I think that Christine Neff, who's been such a wonderful teacher in this space, she also wrote a wonderful book and talks about fierce compassion and why that is certainly far from being wishy-washy is such an important skill. I don't know if you want to say something about that too, because I think it's relevant to this audience. Very relevant. And I think the biggest subject that comes up in this area in the work that I do, and I've had to work really hard at this, is boundaries. That many of us as women have absorbed the message that to say no is wrong and that we need to be all accommodating and we tend to maybe even become somewhat people-pleasing. And then we're self-critical when we get frazzled or we get grumpy because somebody didn't empty the dishwasher or we're tetchy with our partner at home. 
And what's really interesting around boundaries is that actually clear is kind and that learning how to communicate your needs is a really powerful skill. It's not necessarily, it, it actually has a benefit extension to the people around you. Something I took a long time to understand that, that yes, absolutely, you know, saying that something isn't sustainable or isn't okay or that it upsets you in the medium term and the long term really is actually beneficial for everyone rather than storing up resentment and, and becoming burnt out. So that's one of the, the really kind of big areas. But the other thing about compassion, if, if anybody listening thinks about some of the most difficult and courageous conversations you've ever had to have, they are also your most compassionate conversations. If you have to sit someone down and talk to them about poor performance at work or go with somebody to have a, a, a discussion about a diagnosis they don't want to hear or they're scared to hear, those moments of leaning towards difficulty, that's compassion. Um, it actually takes a huge amount of courage. Um, so we, we think it's weak. It's, it's the opposite. It's absolutely the opposite. It certainly is. And those, as you said, those are some of the conversations I think women really have at this time. And a big, I think compassion, and we'll talk, I'll ask you more around this, is helping us to manage those conversations that I think women need to have with their clinicians, mm -hmm. with their workplaces and with their partners. Maybe that's how can they use compassion in that instance? Yes. It's a really great question. It's very relevant to, to this phase of our lives. So one of the skills of learning compassion for yourself and others is learning to stay with discomfort. And the way that you learn to do that is by practicing self-soothing, by learning to support yourself through difficulty. What we tend to do, and I mentioned the, the reaction to empathy earlier in, in this conversation, we, we either we try and skip over difficult emotions or we avoid difficult conversations because it's, it's uncomfortable. And actually, I didn't expect this, but one of the skills of self-compassion is that you practice tolerating difficulty, not to be a pushover and to take on more and more things, but to be able to stay with something and support yourself through something. And I found this to be really helpful around challenging conversations and close relationships and, and also saying, you know, saying I need help or actually what you're suggesting isn't going to work for me. Those kind of conversations require us to be able to stay fairly grounded and firm. And I think the people pleaser in me before would have kind of avoided all of that. And I think many people are the same as me, that kind of not wishing to be a difficult patient or uh, asking for something and, and then not getting it and feeling really crushed because yeah. you tried to ask for it and didn't and didn't get it. And so just really inviting your audience to think about the idea of practicing staying with difficulty. And I never thought about self-soothing until I learned about self-compassion. Like as children, we do naturally kind of know how to self-soothe, but it's sort of drilled out of us as we go, as we grow up, sucking your thumb or playing with your head or wanting to have your face stroked or your forehead stroked or hugs are all natural soothing methods. They release oxytocin and natural opiates, which is part of the physiology of compassion and connection. 
and love. And, and yet we, we sort of become adults and we, we switch off from our bodies. So again, one of the skills of self-compassion is to start to think about what do you naturally know soothes and supports you when you're in difficulty. And I don't mean a bottle of wine because uh, that makes you feel rubbish later. But, but actually, everybody listening will have something that you know, actually, I do feel better if I talk to my best friend or I do feel better if I pet the dog and whiffle their ears. And, but you might be filing that away under like nice to do or even time wasting. Whereas actually those things are really important and really help your physiology to cope with very stressful everyday life. The, the, the pressures that we all have in the news and social media and emails and things, bringing down all of that threat mode through self-soothing is powerful. And one of the skills I, I help leaders with is managing transitions. So if you're going from a meeting to, to another meeting or from work to home, or if you're about to phone someone and you find that a challenging conversation to have, or if you're about to go to the doctor, or just noticing how you're feeling on the inside, self-soothing. To, to manage difficult feelings and then setting your intention as you move into the next uh, thing that you do is again really these are very simple but they're very powerful skills um to learn yeah definitely and i think there there were quite a few things i mean i think a lot of us as you said then sort of feel crushed when we don't get what we want and i see in the menopause conversation women then are very angry with their physician in particular because they didn't maybe have the expected outcome or they were brushed off. And I think being able to stay grounded and hold that conversation and, and that self-compassion can get to a different outcome than going there and coming back and thinking, well, no one listens to me. They don't care about women. And then you get a whole dialogue, which isn't necessarily always what happened. I mean, we know that that can happen, but it isn't always. Mm. And I think, I think we take more responsibility for our own health and we advocate more, don't we, in those spaces? Yes. And I think that's a really great example. I think you're more likely to go back and ask for a further conversation or ask to speak to someone else and to move into that creative rather than reactive mode if you can self-soothe. And I think it's sort of the quality of self-compassion is coming back to this real core um, on the inside, which is always there. And so that you can keep coming back to what's important for me um, and what do I need? That's a central question of self-compassion. What do I need? Um, not because you're focusing only on yourself, but just to keep steadying, to, to return to being kind of captain of your own ship. And, and, that's a really powerful um, skill. And yes, there are, there are good and bad clinicians. There are good and bad herbalists. There are good and bad yoga teachers. Wherever we look, we're going to find someone that doesn't meet our needs. Actually, you know what's best for you and you know what help you need as well, where you're struggling and learning to articulate that. I mean, I think insomnia is a really good example around the perimenopause. It could, insomnia is completely unhinging, very difficult to manage. The fear goes up when you have had a couple of sleepless nights. The next time you get into bed, there's that kind of like panic. <laughs> yes. So having strategies to kind of keep coming back to yourself and what helps 
and what help do I need and who else could possibly support me with this and talking to other people and noticing when you talk to other people, are they helping me or are they making me feel more anxious and whipping me up into sort of anxiety? Really noticing that that sort of self-awareness helps you to find the right solution. Yes, and I think their boundaries become very important because then I think we cut through a lot of the fear-mongering that exists in this time. And I think a lot of women feel that they're being spun around, lots of stories that have often profit-based roots to them, unfortunately, in this space. And if we have better boundaries, if we're more connected and understand what we need, we're less likely to be in that sort of washing machine that that just leaves us feeling worse. Absolutely. And there is a positive side to the menopause. It's it's a transition, but it's full of learning and wisdom. And and as you say, connection becomes much more important. And female friendships, friendships in general. I do think that reconnecting with ourselves and noticing what your body needs is a fantastic opportunity to to really tune in to what works and what works for you, what works within your relationships. It's a chance to really explore those things. So for me, I've had my fair share of hot flushes and insomnia and joint pain. Actually, it's becoming for me a very positive transition. And I do think it's it's important to remember that too. Yes. Actually, it's very empowering because I think somewhere along the way, we start to weed out what's important to us, what's not. And there's something, I mean, I'm in my 60s now, so I'm kind of like, well, I'm not so bothered about what you think about me in the same way as when I was 30, where I was extremely concerned. And so we gain a different kind of confidence Mm. to step out into the world. And that's why I think we're seeing so many more midlife and slightly older women starting businesses, writing books, doing all sorts of things. Because suddenly it's like, well, I'm doing this now. So I think that's definitely the positive of the moment. Absolutely. And and that fierce compassion is part of that, isn't it? I've got something to say and actually maybe I'll just get on and say it. I think I've become a bit more bolshy um, since <laughs> since I learned self-compassion, probably because I'm less people-pleasing, but also yeah. I'm less fearful of failure or difficulty because of knowing I can handle difficulty. So it's interesting how it has a, a an impact that helps you to, as you say, be a bit more outspoken or a bit more just daring to be you, which I think is really positive. Oh, I think that's 100% positive in a world where I think we've been too compliant as younger women. That's, yeah. that's part of it. And it'll ruffle a few feathers, but well, that's just how it is. If you had one simple tip that listeners could use, start using today, what would that be? I think a really big part of this is the inner critic. So the, t- the top tip I have for your listeners around the inner critic, we tend to think that the inner critic is something we've got to get rid of. And, and I was very fearful of that because it's like, well, it's got me where I am today. Like I can't possibly, you might notice that sensation in yourself. Actually, it's really important to recognize that the inner critical voice is trying to protect you in some way. It's like a silly best friend who is got your best interests at heart, but it's just going about things in the wrong way. 
and is and, and is causing some disruption. So actually, rather than trying to chop off that part of yourself with the inner critic, start to notice like why, 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 what does it think it's trying to do? Why is it, why is it doing this? Now, obviously, sometimes our inner critic is an internalized voice of a caregiver, someone else. And the, the important work to do there is to recognize it's not even your voice, just, just to separate from it, which, which takes a bit of work. But oftentimes, actually, there's a really big reason it's trying to keep you safe from being unacceptable or from taking a risk or, and it's not to say that you indulge the inner critic forevermore, but learning to have some softness and to say, thank you, then enables you to move into how could I slightly transform that conversation still with the, the same motivation of looking after me, but with a different voice. So that's my top tip is don't try and get rid of your inner critic. Recognize it's, it's there in all of us. It's trying to do something and you can transform it. Yes, definitely. I think when I did my breathworks training, I think the words we used was hello thought, thank you thought, goodbye thought. <laughs> like you've acknowledged it, but you know, it, it isn't very helpful to me now. So thanks, but you can come back later. And a lot of hilarious role playing that we did in training. It was just brilliant. Yeah, it was so funny. Some of it trying to get somebody's inner critic going and then and then teaching them to ignore it. Or at least just to let it be there. Because yes. it may not it will fade with time, won't it, if we practice self-compassion. It will. And also what you can learn to do is to notice that the inner critic is not actually very motivating. We think it's important. It's not doing such a great job. So you can add something else in instead. So the compassionate motivator wants you to make changes, wants you to improve, wants you to be socially acceptable, but not because there's anything wrong with you, just because it wants the best for you. And, and that's a different approach. That's actually really honest and encouraging, saying, come on, you can do this rather than, oh, you're terrible because you've not done it already. Yeah, very, very different. Yeah. Nicola, this is, it's just such an fantastic conversation compassionate is an endless conversation we can have because there's so many facets and dimensions to it how can people get in touch with you and learn more about the work that you do and maybe work with you as well well i have a website so it's nicolaharkercoaching.com and through my website you can sign up to get free resources I have some really some low cost things like some group memberships where you can join women's groups to have gentle coaching and supportive coaching right through to working with me one to one. And I also come into organizations to coach whole companies even or, or teams to cultivate these skills around self-compassion and compassionate leadership. So lots of ways to work with me. But if you go to my website, you can message me through my website and we can arrange to chat. That's fantastic. Nicola, thank you so much for coming and sharing some really fantastic insights on self-compassion and how women going through perimenopause and menopause can view this time with compassion. Thank you. It's really lovely to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Thriving Through Menopause. If you like this podcast episode, please hop over to my website, thrivethroughmenopause.com and rate and review it. And thank you if you do that because it helps others to find the show. Want more news and views on perimenopause and menopause? 
then sign up to my weekly newsletter, Heart of Menopause, over on Substack. Thank you once again for listening and see you next week for another guest interview helping you to thrive through menopause.